0: Exocast.
1: <laughs> Exocast. Exocast. Exocast.
0: Exocast. Exocast.
1: Exocast. Exocast.
2: Exocast. Exocast.
0: Exocast. Hello, you are listening to Exocast, the podcast that takes you far beyond the solar system to explore distant extrasolar worlds. Coming up on today's show, I'll be letting you know about the goings-on on Exoplanets 2 meeting with thoughts from a field of experts. Andrew will be chatting to our special guest, and he will cover this month's Exoplanets news, so stay tuned. But first, let's introduce the Exocast family. My name is Hannah Wakeford, and I am a Giaconi Fellow at the Space Telescope Science Institute and do characterisation of giant exoplanets.
2: Uh, my name is Abby Rushby. I'm a postdoc here at NASA Ames Research Center where I study the early climates of the Earth and long-term planetary habitability.
1: And I'm Hugh Osborne. I'm a postdoc in Marseille in France and I study the Plato Transiting Explanet Mission.
0: And you guys are all in California at the moment. So how's that going? Hugh, you're on, on your... your What is it again? You introduced it last what, show. <laughs> what
1: is it? I asked myself that as well. It's, it's a research accelerator, which is, I don't know, like it's like Space Camp for grown-ups, right? <laughs> Sounds great. <laughs> and instead of making bottle rockets, we're making uh, machine learning pipelines to, to do some cool stuff with space science. But yeah, it's going well. Um, it's, it's, it's really weird to be in the room with, with Andrew recording this, actually. It's like the first time in two years that I we've actually so, recorded this I
2: together. think Hannah
1: and Hugh have recorded together. Um, in in exoplanets conferences,
2: I think. actually, we recorded live from uh, from Edinburgh uh, from St Andrews. Oh gosh, that
0: was, that was over things. a year ago now.
2: It was a while, but
0: yeah. It's, it's
1: been... We've never done this all together
2: though, which is quite impressive. <laughs> there will be a day, I hope. I mean, I'm, I'm sure our listeners think it sounds so professional;
1: they can barely believe that. But yeah, it is the case. <laughs> is the
2: case.
1: So you you just came back, Andrew, from a meeting, right? How was that? No, you didn't?
2: Uh, no, haven't been. <laughs> no, I went to OWL very briefly yesterday, oh, which yeah. is the Otherworlds Lab down at University of California. Yeah, there's a lot um, happening on the West Coast. Everyone. Yeah, it seems like a really cool set, like pretty much the opposite of what you described as, yeah. talks in the morning, and then a very like chilled research accelerator as well, but more about collaborative work together in like a quiet place. It's a beautiful campus, I'll probably never leave
1: if I'm worried <laughs> um, How are things in Europe, Hannah? You're uh, in the Netherlands, I believe, right?
0: Yeah, it's my first trip to the Netherlands. Actually, I gave a, I was at the university all yesterday. I gave a talk uh, to the group there. Really great group of people um, at the university. And today I've been touristing around, so taking a holiday for one day, and then tomorrow back to back to work. Really,
2: it's still time to record Exocast. But
0: still time to make sure I got back to the hotel to record Exocast with with you guys. So <laughs> priorities.
2: Well, uh, talking priority, should we get into our first segment? Um, good idea. Sounds great. So we are fortunate this month uh, to be joined by Dr. Michael Gully santiago uh, from the K2 Guest Observer Office here at NASA Ames, um, from where we're recording, so welcome doctor Gully Gulley-Santiago. Firstly, do you mind if I call you Gully? is that
3: okay? Yeah, that's what a lot of folks call me, first half, half of my last name, so yes. Yeah.
2: Well, thank you, Gully. Welcome to the show. Um, could you give us maybe just a quick overview of your responsibilities in the Geo Office, the Kepler, the K2 Geo Office, for
3: example? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm a support scientist there at the Kepler K2 Guest Observer Office, and that involves a lot of duties. But broadly speaking, we uh, support the community. So um, one of the first duties, of course, is just uh, making sure that. The proposals for targets and the and the proposals for funding are uh, allocated in a uh, in a way that's consistent with uh, uh, the priorities of the community. So that involves assembling uh, review panels and that sort of thing. Um, but beyond that, it's uh, it's anything from. Uh, making sure that uh, code that that, uh, supports the community for analyzing our data is robust and is uh, freely available online. Uh, That's something we do a lot of is is code and software development for research and data analysis. Uh, But there's many other aspects including just consulting with the community and, and uh, organizing conferences and workshops like, and that sort kind of, of thing. It's kind
2: interface, right? Yeah. Between, you know, the community and the, the science hardware, basically.
3: Exactly right.
2: Yeah, yeah. And, and you so you got your PhD in astronomy from UT Austin, right? And then you did um, a, a bit of a stint over in China. Right?
3: That's right. Yeah, Capital yeah.
2: Institute over there.
3: That's right. Um, yes.
2: So those are both in astronomy. Would you consider yourself an astronomer, instrumentationalist,
3: yeah, so, so relatively broad background. So uh, my PhD involved a lot of aspects of uh, astronomical ins- instrumentation and even maybe a layer removed from that, which is uh, astronomical device development, so enabling instrumentation in the future. Uh, and uh, specifically that was involving uh, the development of, of optical devices for telescopes, so silicon diffractive optics, uh, basically silica, so-called silicon immersion grading. Uh, uh, the other aspects that I worked on in China were a little bit different, but uh, specifically involved using uh, statistical inference to build uh, spectral analysis pipelines, basically. Uh, and by pipelines, I don't mean ta- things that take raw data and translate that into uh, maybe more usable data. It's that takes even reduced data and then translates that into parameter estimation for uh, understanding stars, in this case it was young stars, but uh, really the framework I built was applicable to a a wide range of of astrophysical phenomena.
2: So I guess as your your expertise in in instrumentation gives you a bit of an insight into how um, maybe minor imperfections in the telescope might result in these artifacts that, that, that make their way into the data. So in your opinion, what's the primary source for some of these artifacts? It's probably a very entry-level question, but it's a good way to open things up a bit.
3: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, I've really shifted the way I've I've thought about uh, data analysis and astronomy over the last maybe three years or more, where I really start to think of the data-generating process. So what exactly generated the data? And I think that's maybe that's an obvious thing to think, about but uh but it's something that um really perhaps because of my instrumentation background is is something that uh has really changed the way i think about about solving these problems so your your specific question was okay for kepler like you know what's the dominant uh error well uh Basically, Kepler was, in principle, designed to be perfectly stable. So it's out in space, it's not even orbiting the Earth, it's orbiting the sun, so the temperature variation should be relatively small. And and the only thing that should be changing is really the brightnesses of the stars. That's, that's really you know, what we're after is the change in brightness attributable to the stars themselves and, of course, the planets orbiting them. In practice, that's not exactly the only thing that's changing. Other aspects of the instrument are changing. So, for example, the telescope moves and, uh, and the telescope warms up and slightly over time. And those are probably uh, the two main sources of changes in the in, in, right. in the the, the in little the data. physical
2: expansion of the materials that make up the telescope, right?
3: Exactly right. So even minute uh, thermal changes can uh, can imbue a slight change in the brightness of stars. Uh, and that might be because the focus changes, for example, either due to the lengthening or due to perhaps uh, the refractive index of the optics changes slightly as a function of temperature. But
1: are these quite slow effects? These seem... because. Planets are very sort of rapid changes, in like you know, a couple of hours or more. Um, so, so what's the dominant thing that looks like planets in Kepler?
3: Exactly right. So, so the the question of timescales is really fundamental to the discussion of noise sources in Kepler and really any any future project tests or, or others. Because uh, the question is, well, what what artifact instrumental artifact resembles the timescales of interest and uh, for planets, you're right that, okay, well, s- very slowly varying thermal changes aren't likely to, uh, to imbue the, the sort of effects that resemble repeated planets on one-year orbits. But actually, there's one particularly pernicious type of, uh, noise source that, that, uh, uh, we have identified. Uh, the name that we use for it is rolling bands. Uh, and so you can search for rolling bands Kepler and you can find uh, some some information about it uh, the, the main idea of rolling bands is that the the detector electronics for the the CCDs so the the uh, digital camera chips basically uh, those all actually have a a time dependent uh, noise source uh, that basically if you remember you know it, the, the bad old days of, of CRT screens, right? So before we had these nice, uh, LCD monitors on our computers, we had these, these, uh, cathode, L, cathode yeah, ray cathode ray, ray tube, uh, style, uh, TVs. Uh, if you ever took a, a uh, video of those, you would see these these beat phenomena. You'd see these black bands, very secularly, gradually moving through your your field. Uh, you might still be able to see it on some monitors these days, but but less so. But that's exactly the type of effect that we see and we call rolling bands. And it's really a it's, it is a beating phenomenon in the sense that uh, what's fundamentally physically happening is the temperature of the electronics heats up and, and cools down. And the, the readout time is like the 200th harmonic or something of like the sampling rate or something. And these, these, uh, these slight matches of, of beating in time tend to resonate and cause this uh, slightly rolling band. So, so what it is is like a, a slight uh, decrease or increase in additive flux to the background uh, at a very low level, maybe uh, exact numbers, maybe tens of electrons per second, or, or maybe more or less depending on, it actually depends on which channel you're on and all these different things. Uh, but the essence and why this is really fundamental to the search for planets with Kepler uh, and, and especially Parnicious is that, that since it depends on temperature and because Kepler Prime mission uh, was in orbit around the sun and right. still still is in orbit around the Earth, that it sort of Kepler tended to return to the same temperature each year in the orbit, so its amount of illumination was about the same on one-year timescales. And so what happened was you would see, oh, you know, we're back one year later, and the detector electronics are back to the same temperature, so the rolling band is back in the same exact place it was. Yeah, it's a seasonal seasonal thing, thing. and it happens exactly on one year, and it and it dims the brightness by just a little bit. You know, you subtract off a little bit of your flux, and that looks like a planet orbit, Uh, and it lasts about six hours, which is about what a planet orbit (laughs) lasts. Uh so this was really uh this is really the confounding factor of, of Kepler K2 data because of yeah. how how much it looked like the yeah. planet right Yeah exactly
0: Thank you so much for describing that and actually explaining what that means and why that happened because you know we learn about the fact that there is this peak there is this, this flux at that 365 days and that you just explained it beautifully and, and I think our audience will find that really interesting I certainly do
3: yeah. One more thing. So to add as a, a way to potentially mitigate this artifact is it affects some channels much more than others. And so you can actually plot like the frequency of uh, these threshold crossing events and things, and they tend to pile up on certain detectors. So one way to to mitigate uh, just, hey, is is this planet candidate real is, well, use conditional probabilities. So the probability that this candidate is real given that it's on the bad detector is probably lower than one that it's not on a a good detector. Uh, And some folks are thinking about doing that and that's that's the right way to go.
2: Well, I don't think we could have you on the show with asking a little bit more about the current state of the spacecraft.
3: That's uh, right.
2: Okay, so people yeah, probably aware. Yeah, exactly. Large telescope-shaped elephant in the room. People are probably aware of the announcement earlier this month that the Kepler spacecraft has entered a sort of hibernation mode as fuel reserves are now running pretty low. We often talked on the show about how you know the, we're coming up to the limit for the fuel.
3: Um, so, it, do you have any updates that you can share with us on that? Or? Sure, sure. So I'll, I'll tell you what you know what we know. So main thing is so Kepler Prime lasted for for uh, about four years and then we've entered you know k2 mission about uh about four years uh now and uh you know we've been immensely successful we've collected tons of data that data will last for decades of of analysis We, we expect tons more discoveries to come from the data so uh so although our data collection phase is beginning to come to an end uh the the scientific mission of the telescope uh, continues. Yeah. Um, so, so what we know about the state of the spacecraft is uh, well, one, it's it's about an AU away from from Earth. So it's about as far away from from Earth as the sun is uh, in a sort of equilateral triangle. Um, so. Uh, so it's distant, uh, but that's not the limiting factor on the data collection. It is the fuel. As you, as you mentioned, we, we are running out of fuel. And that fuel is needed to keep Kepler positioned, uh, on stars. Uh, we, we have these reaction wheels, which allow us to fine tweak our position, but we need to occasionally course tweak our, our positioning. And that fuel, that, that process requires fuel. And that fuel is basically basically out. It's like when the the E on your car uh, light comes on. Uh, the indicator we had is not as clear as the the Gas light on a car. It's actually we the signal we saw was a drop in pressure uh, And you know based on what we know about the spacecraft system. We expect that that drop in pressure uh, should coincide with an basically an absence of fuel so uh, what we did is well we had about 50 days worth of campaign 18 data in the can and we saw this drop in pressure so we went into the nap mode and what i can tell you now is that on august 1st uh so so we will uh you know this this episode might even have aired by then. Uh, depending how quickly, we can, edit. Depending how quickly <laughs> we can edit. So, but but that's the critical next date is August 1st. Uh I I believe, you know, or plus or minus a day depending sure. on your time zone and whatever. Uh we will send the command to send the data back or begin the process. That process of sending the data back takes uh over 3 days because of the the distance to the uh and weak signal of the spacecraft. Um and in that process, uh you we must spend fuel to get into the position to beam telescope back to Earth. So the question is, well, do we have enough fuel to even get back to the position to send data back to Earth? And the answer to some extent is we we don't know in the sense that we've never tried to send data back with such low fuel. Um, uh, Hopefully we do, of course. We'd like to see that 50 days worth of valuable data get back. Uh, If we do have enough fuel and we send the data back successfully, we will attempt campaign 19. So uh, let's go ahead and try to get to campaign 19. And and, uh, in that case, we'll be very uh, low risk because if we don't get there, then there's no data at risk. Uh, But if we do get there and we acquire more data, even a few weeks worth of data of campaign 19 is very valuable. So, yeah, exciting.
1: So in order to send a, a signal that you want the spacecraft to point to Earth, does it not have to be pointing the antenna at Earth
3: anyway? Right. So there's two types of antenna. There's oh, okay, like a, right. a relatively um, uh, broad aerial coverage um, one, and then there's a more uh, high-gain antenna. that. Right, that yeah. Exactly. So, so the small-gain yeah.
1: antenna covers like all the sky. Exactly right, right,
3: exactly right, yeah. It's still a little weak in certain directions, and so we, we sort of hope that when we send signals it's pointed, you know, in the right cone, but... Uh, yeah, it, it's it's pretty robust.
2: Yeah, I guess for anyone who's just hearing about this now, somehow they might think, oh, you know, how did how did it get to this stage? How did you know we end up running out of fuel and not really knowing how much we have? But this was never supposed to be the end of this was never supposed to be how Kepler was supposed to finish, right? The only reason we're using fuel for course pointing is because we lost the reaction wheels, and then that meant that we had to, you know, start using solar pressure to point. So it was never like this was going to be. We were always we were never going to know about the fuel. Level really, as in as much detail as we would like.
3: Right, right, yeah. So I mean, we've we've already achieved, you know, the Kepler Prime mission. Absolutely. Uh, four years of Yeah, stuff Ready four years, and campaigns. and uh, you know, if we, we could have lasted even longer in the Kepler Prime mission, had it not been for the reaction wheels. Uh, uh, so so yeah, I mean, we've we've already accomplished two great missions, and uh, you know, Tess is Tess is coming on board soon, and. Uh, And they'll basically uh, keep carrying the torch. Well, fingers crossed.
0: It's just another example of the little telescope that could. And the the beauty of what we're hearing and what we present on the show as well with Kepler just keeps going and keeps going and keeps going. And we never thought we'd get 18. And this is just a really great example that... You know, we're coming up to, in next year, the 30th anniversary of Hubble. Like, if we build a telescope and we stick it up there, it will do more than what we ever imagined. And the same thing happened with Cassini and and hugely different missions. So whatever happens, you know, we can overcome these. It's brilliant to see and and hear about all of the the behind-the-scenes stuff and exactly what's happening and why, that this is gone way beyond what it was supposed to do in the first space. So it's, it's really nice to get to the end of a lifetime of a mission and not just leave something out there with fuel that is unused. Using up every single ounce of this telescope is exactly what we should be doing with everything.
3: That's right. There's effectively no waste in, uh, in Kepler. In fact, I even came up with a scheme to collect a type of calibration data when it was uh, idle at the end of its uh, deep space network connection. So, you know, we there's there's really there's no waste here, so that's that's a good thing.
2: Perhaps you know, hundreds of years from now, space archaeologists will retrieve it and put it in some museum on the moon. Perhaps. Okay, we're getting weird now. So, uh,
1: <laughs> but it's coming back around, right? <laughs> that's
2: true. So, uh, thank you to Dr. Michael Gully Santiago, aka Gully, for joining us on the show um, this month. It's been great to have you on. On board, getting that insight into how things are done behind the scene, and to actually thank you for not just being on here, but also for the work that you do for the community through the the G office. It's yeah. much appreciated. Okay.
3: Great. Well, happy to be here, and uh, happy with the work you do. I'm a big fan of podcasts, and so it's always good to have uh, scientific podcasts out there that are really current and what you know what's going on today. So yeah, try.
0: yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you.
3: So
1: now I'm over to Hannah in Europe, and and you're partly over there for the Exoplanets Two conference, I believe. So how was that? What, what was the uh, cutting edge science released at that conference?
0: I uh, Two conference, uh, it wasn't particularly filled with like a huge amount of surprises, but it was a really excellent summary of the past few years and and improvements that come from asking more questions in a field that is rapidly expanding. So the conference itself took place in Cambridge in the UK at the City Guild Hall, which is relatively new. It was built in 1939. However, that means that there is no modern air conditioning and the windows don't really open because they were nice stained glass windows. So in a week where we got highs of 28 to 30 degrees, it was rather unbearable in the room because we were in quite we were in what is no, what is called the small hall and there was 304 of us and there were 313 seats so uh it was it was quite bad. But I'm going to get the moaning about the heat out of the way because it was something that was noted continuously throughout the conference. It's very British so as well. I made sure each day that I noted the temperature that was happening just so that I could say it on here. But I'm not going to. Uh, but Thursday, it was very, very clear that everybody was struggling a little bit because people were sitting at the back where it was closest to open windows on the floor, uh, they were sitting along the edges where they could get out quickly. Uh, and the, the front of the room where all the seats were was pretty much uh, spread quite thin by that point because it was, it was far too hot to sit next to anybody. But uh, the conference itself consisted of five solid days of science from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. every single day with an hour for lunch. Uh, and luckily, there was a really nice food market outside the guild hall, so everyone had time to, to grab something very quickly. Um, and I said I'd get the heat moaning out of the way, but not the rest of things. Uh, so, for, for those outside of the field uh, listening to this, I hope there's a goodly, good, solid contingent of you doing so. But conferences really are designed as a space to bring people together from all different institutes and different philosophies to discuss the broad, kind of overarching topic through these tiny little nuances that each of us individually study. So, there's often controversy and ego and bouts of scientific discussion in there. Um, But uh, go to Twitter and and have a look at what what was happening on on Twitter each and every single one of the days for some interesting stories on science embargoes and whether or not you can discuss things. So that that was a lot of fun and controversy. But what I do want to highlight is what I like most about these conferences is getting the opportunity to talk to your collaborators face to face. And this year, I actually had the privilege of being able to introduce some of my students' Uh, and students that I work with to people they've been wanting to meet in the field and to some of their collaborators as well so seeing the 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 joy of actually seeing them continue scientific conversations throughout the week was absolutely great and, and made it very much worth it but let's talk science The days were nicely split up into topics, with one day covering detections, day two was formation, three was dynamics, four characterization, and five was instrumentation. And there was obviously a few mismatched talks in between there because you can't get it absolutely perfect, but the the science organising committee did really well to put a narrative to the whole week. So I'm going to go through a few highlights that I noted during the week rather than give you a, a... day by day summary of each of the talks because if you want to go and find that out please look up the the hashtag exoplanets two that's exoplanets with the number two after it and there was some great tweeters at the conference including myself jane burkby and ryan mcdonald who covered all every single one of the different talks that was going on so if you want an extensive uh play by play of the conference please go and look up that hashtag But I'm just going to give you a little bit of a a summary of things that I noted and I think stood out a little bit. So one of those things um, during the week was a talk by Morbidelli. um, And he actually asked a question, which I think we all need to be asking. What is the Earth? Uh, And he spent that talk really urging us to think about and understand what we were comparing to when we mentioned that we're looking for these other Earths and things like the Earth. So we, it was a discussion really on what sequence of characteristics are we referring to when we discuss that question and aim towards it. It's not just about a one Earth maths, Earth-sized world at one AU. We need to add also the fourth dimension of time to that and say about where in Earth's history we would be talking about as well and what kind of geological features we would be expecting as a reference point so it was a really critical question that I don't think is asked as much as it needs to at more broad exoplanet quest- uh, at conferences I think perhaps at some of the ones that you go to Andrew that's asked quite a lot
2: I would like to chime in and say you know I've done a I've done a little bit on that and that stuff myself you know looking at why planet well how long planets are habitable for and why that might be important but we'll talk about that another time don't interject
0: no no uh, it, it's it's just a question that Lots of people are working on, but in these more generic exoplanet conferences, it's never asked. And I think it was a realisation point for a lot of people in the room who are doing detections, who are doing this base characterization. that actually, can we even understand that? Because that's not our field. That is very much your field and astrobiologists. And that's something that needs to be crossed over a lot more. There is very little crossover between astrobiologists and these broad exoplanet conferences, so I, th- I thought it was a really good introduction to the whole room that they need to start thinking like that as well.
2: Yeah, let's, let's think about planets in space. Well, keep thinking about planets in space, but also think about them in time
0: as well. Yep. So uh, there was lots of talks over the first two days cautioning about false detections for both radial velocity and for transit surveys. One presenter actually highlighted the problems associated where you uh, acquire more radial velocity data and how that means that you are able to then fit towards more complex systems uh, where perhaps it's not needed. So that was really very much highlighted in, in a number of talks. And the the question is essentially, where do you draw that line? And that's some, something that we all have to consider, especially when we're moving into these new techniques, where do we draw the line, where do we draw the, the logical box to say whether we should be fitting that so there's a lot of statistics that's associated with that that was covered uh and when uh also voiced something that i've always been concerned about but had no technical expertise to do anything about luckily there are lots of people that do um he also labeled himself as a Proxima centauri skeptic but he he went away and actually looked at the data and having done that analysis himself he's got less skeptical so i that really stood out to me because that's something that i would like to have personally been able to do but I, i don't have the expertise to do that but it's interesting and it's important that we keep asking questions ourselves as scientists. And, and when in the position to reanalyze data, that's the point. We're supposed to be able to reproduce what other people have done. So for, for someone to go up there and very much admit that they don't uh, immediately get the feeling that they, they understand or believe data, they go away and actually do it. And that's very much a scientific method that we want to be driving it and pushing forward. So uh, that really stood out for me as well. But uh, to, to highlight the most controversial uh, things that seemed to stir up a lot of questions, a lot of comments uh, after talks, before talks, during coffee sessions, um, was that the, the topic of planetary atmospheres and the signatures of formation in those atmospheres. And this actually started on day two and then continued until the end of the conference. So it really was an overarching kind of question that went through everything. And one thing that was very much highlighted early on was that we're learning a lot from the Juno mission about Jupiter. But that brings up a lot of questions about what we're being able to observe with exoplanet atmospheres. And the fact that Jupiter seems to show evidence that the core is eroding or has eroded over time. And this contaminates the atmosphere that you're observing. And the question is whether or not what we're observing in these these giant exoplanet atmospheres is a contaminated atmosphere by core erosion and then some vertical velocities and vertical mixing or if it is the primordial atmosphere that they were born with um, so those two things become a really important note and a really important distinction and there was no real conclusions to this towards the end of the conference at all but it was just uh, an added question that we need to be aware of and look towards that all of the different things that we're observing in these planetary atmospheres, we don't know their origins, but we've got to try and find them out. And we've got to try and work towards constraints on those to as precise degree as we can so that we can distinguish between these different scenarios. So that, w- that was quite controversial. Um, everyone had their own opinion on whether or not the atmospheric metallicity that you measure can be used for anything at all, uh, or if it can be used to distinguish between certain models. Uh, and then everybody's models were also very much, uh, there's a lot of people at the moment doing these theoretical models. So there was a lot of people discussing those and the nuances between them. So that's something that uh, you can definitely find some discussions on Twitter based on that. So what, what one thing that really did come out of that type of discussion is that these these elemental abundances that we can measure and those for Jupiter... The thing is, these hot Jupiters that we look at, these giant planets close to their star, these exoplanets that we're observing and characterizing, we can actually get a lot better information on their atmospheric abundances than we can for Jupiter itself. And that's just simply because of the phase space it sits in, the regime in which it sits with the temperature pressure and the the amount of information that we get through that atmosphere. So there's a lot that exoplanets, these low hanging fruit as what people call them in terms of observations, can tell us about giant planets and can tell us about giant planets like those in our own solar system instead of essentially the reverse where we get all of these amazingly and beautifully detailed images of Jupiter that doesn't necessarily translate as directly to these exoplanets um as we thought so that's really interesting but uh, I'm going to stop there and apologize for not going into too much detail, but really go check out that hashtag if you want a play-by-play of this conference. It really was very interesting. There was tons of talks and a huge number of people, but I want to uh, instead give them the opportunity to speak. And I spent the week as the intrepid reporter for Exocast. I felt more like a journalist during the week than I, I did a scientist sitting in the audience. And I talked to a lot of the experts in the field and ask them a few questions so i'm going to sit back and let them introduce themselves and tell you a little bit about what they want you to know about exoplanets i'm uh, Taisia kapitova and i'm a postdoc at arizona state university my name
2: is sarah moran i am a graduate student at johns hopkins university in the united states
1: maximilian gunter university of cambridge
2: Uh, Megan Mansfield and the University of Chicago. Jeff Valenti, Space Telescope Science Institute. I'm Julia
1: Seidel from the University of Geneva. I'm Jake Taylor and I go to the University of Oxford.
0: I'm Stephanie Merritt, I'm a PhD student at Queen's University Belfast.
1: My name is Ryan MacDonald,
2: I'm a PhD student at the University of Cambridge. I'm Brian Kilpatrick, I'm a PhD student at
3: Brown University. My name is Shami, Uh, I'm working at the University of Bern.
2: My name is Laura Mayorga and I'm currently at the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics.
1: I'm Paul Leyland, I'm Brennicat Limited. My name's Ben Pope, the postdoc at New York University.
2: My name is Kristen Showalter-Satzen and I am from the Johns Hopkins University in the U.S.
0: And what is your favourite exoplanet? So my favourite exoplanet is actually very cool isolated brown dwarf. It's VICE or 855 wasp WASP-121B HD-80606B
1: HD-209458B D-209458B NTTS-3AB
2: HD-20742B <laughs> WASP-79B K-2155
1: Aldebaran B
3: HD-189733B
2: Right now, my favorite exoplanet is TRAPPIST-1E The
3: TRAPPIST-1 system actually
0: Proxima Centauri b, because it's close to us.
1: Proxima Centauri, Fox b. What
0: facts do you want everybody to know about exoplanets?
1: I think it's just really cool that there's lots of them. I mean, people spent, you know,
2: a century claiming that there'd be very, very few, and um, they've turned out to be
1: ubiquitous. Well, I want everyone to know that our solar system is so weird, because the most commonly found planet has not been seen
3: in our solar system.
0: There's a huge diversity of exoplanets that we've discovered which is super cool because there's all these crazy kinds of planets that we don't have in the solar system like really hot gas giants and like planets that are like bigger than the earth and maybe terrestrial and maybe not and yeah so there's a lot of cool new interesting planets.
2: I want everyone to know that these are actual worlds out there. They're not just little pinpoints of light that they have weather and clouds and some of them surfaces and... It's just amazing that we can actually, we're in an era we can study other worlds that are outside our solar system. We can finally model atmospheres, so we can actually talk about winds now, which is something that was out of range last year and it's really fun.
1: Not everything that looks like a planet at first um, is actually a planet, but there can be false positives hidden in our data.
2: Exoplanets are incredibly exotic systems that always have more surprises in store for us and we're only just scratching the surface of what they have to unveil.
1: This is a area of bleeding edge research which uh, for which amateur astronomers can produce real solid scientific data. Everybody should
2: realize that uh, hot Jupiters are really interesting, don't just ignore hot Jupiters.
0: I just want to say that hot Jupiters are super interesting in their own right. They're the only place in the universe where we can see these incredibly extreme atmospheric conditions and see how different molecules interact and behave at these enormously high temperatures. So I think people should stop saying that hot Jupiters are like a means to an end for studying terrestrial atmospheres and appreciate them on their own merits.
3: I think everyone should know um,
2: the definition of habitable zone, because we all have a very specific definition. And you, you, we quite often see these on the news. And if you don't know the definition, which is uh, the, sur- the temperature of the planet can hold liquid water on the surface, then you, you might cause some misunderstanding.
3: I would like the entire world
2: to know that there are planets in the habitable zones around other stars and that that's really fascinating and maybe we can find other life in other stars.
0: There are plenty of them. People are unaware that like so many stars have exoplanets that it looks like it's almost a product of star formation. So, And then there are, we already know a thousand of them and there are going to be many 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 more.
3: There are more than you think there are. <laughs>
2: I've got to say, Hannah, thank you for, for doing that. There was a lot of work that went into there, and you make a fantastic science journalist, as you make a great scientist. So uh,
0: maybe another potential career there for you. <laughs> it was a lot of fun talking to everybody. It really gave me the opportunity to do what I said at the beginning, talk to different people, talk to people who I've collaborated with, and get their students and, and corner them and get them to answer the box. So it's a very, uh, the VoxBox I really enjoyed doing because it allowed me to talk to lots of students.
2: I was just gonna say i liked earlier when you were introducing the segment that you um, mentioned one of the highlights was the chance for you to introduce your students to other people and like kind of um push them out of the academic nest so to speak and so it's it's notable that you took pride in that hannah
0: oh i i really i'm I, you know i gave them a list i was like right who do you want to talk to tell me and i will try and do that if i know them i will try and do that and if i don't we're going to walk up to those people and we're going to introduce ourselves because that's what we need to be doing so it's it's a terrifying thing i never enjoyed doing it i i always had someone that was with me that i you know someone standing next to me as i did that and it is an awkward thing because everyone's having conversations all the time so you are essentially standing there a bit awkwardly listening into someone's yeah, conversation. We'll just so that you can introduce yourself so um, there were a couple of ones where we were just standing there for a bit longer than we we felt comfortable, but we held in and and ended up having really great chats with these people.
1: I guess it helped um, that there were so many students at this conference because of how they did the organisation, right? Was it was it was it quite um, PhD and student dominated?
0: It did seem like that. There were so many people in the room that I didn't know. Um, very diverse and young crowd. I like I like that a lot. There, there was a little bit on the organization side that wasn't as diverse as you'd like, um, but that unfortunately is, is a consequence of any and every meeting that we've got. And, and hopefully we learn from that and we improve every single time that there is any kind of meeting. Okay, well, uh, now that we've heard all about that, it's time for Hugh to give us a roundup of this month's Exoplanet news. So what has the community actually been up to?
1: Well, a, a lot of things. You know, normally in summer we get a little slowdown, but I think at the moment it's still keeping on chugging. The uh, the archive is still spitting out a lot of uh, interesting new news. So I, hopefully I, I can cover some of that. Um, although I realise now looking at my notes that I've maybe slanted it too much towards transiting planets, but that's my uh, uh, my own bias appears quite a lot. So apologies if that's the case. But well, you heard the big news that about Kepler from Gully. That's um, midway through campaign 18 the guys here at ames saw the fuel pressure alert and ended the campaign early but hopefully as he said we can restart in august and potentially get some of campaign 19 down but it does look like this could be the end for kepler after eight years but it has handed over effectively to tess which is beginning science observations pretty soon and i'm lucky enough to be working on TESS at the moment for summer so i have um, some insider knowledge that I cannot share, unfortunately, but it, it, it's, it's all good. Oh, don't worry. Teasing. <laughs> <laughs> um, On to detections. There were three new WASP hot Jupiters 161, 163, and 170. And we have two Jupiters from Alex Smith from K2, EPIC 22051947B and K2237B, which were confirmed with HARPS and feed spectra. We have another hot Jupiter from K2 by Johnson et al which is a hot Jupiter transiting an F-star, which is actually the first K2 planet to be found that has a clear secondary eclipse, so we actually see the, the light or the light of the planet when it moves behind the star. And also EPIC 2014 98078b, uh, which is a warm Saturn around a bright G-star. Uh, these will get shorter K2 names when they get accepted, but uh, <laughs> I don't know. I seem to be breaking our rule of uh, not using... <laughs> it's, pretty, stuff, it's pretty flexible. It's think, flexible, yeah. yeah. Another one that hasn't been um, accepted yet is Oh no is there in fact I just realized it's the same planet so Rafael et discovered discovered the same as Johnson et al yeah, Epic two, 2014 9807b so um, a confirmation or no they just working do, against each other <laughs> you know it's a competitive world of yeah, planet detection right. so they probably saw their competitors beat them to it and the high seas of the exoplanet detection yeah. absolutely a really interesting paper by Joey Rodriguez and Sal, which was a six-planet system from K2. So this is um, EPIC 248435473, which is very bright, which is uh, 8.9 in, in, in K mag. And of these six planets, four of them are validated. Two of them, these, through um, the radial velocities they took with TRES, and two of the largest ones, the planet's E, through TTVs. But that leaves two other planets, um which are yet to be confirmed and actually some of these planets are incredibly small so that so the smallest um, k2 planets ever found is in this system at 0.64 earth radii uh, and that's validated and the other two that haven't yet been uh, confirmed are at 0.58 and 0.81 so these are some really small planets and, and, and even more interesting is that some of the period ratios in this system are crazy so the planets second and third furthest from the star have 6.1 day and 7.8 day periods, so these are these are only a ratio of 1.28, so for me that seems like it should be unstable, but um, apparently they, they're ex- perfectly happily existing. Um, another interesting, I want to say planet from K2, and the reason I want to say planet is because it's a uh, paper I was on, but led by Helen Giles, and we found the probably the longest period transiting planet candidate from K2, with a planetary period around 10 years, but we haven't um, really narrowed that down, of course, because we've only been a few months since this was seen by K2. Uh, the transit itself lasted 52 hours, so if, if it is confirmed it's the longest tr- transit event ever seen. And it's around a, um, a big star, about three solar radius subgiants. Um, and one of the oldest planets too. When we first round the data It wanted the star to be over 14 giga years old, so we had to kind of push it down to make sure it fitted in the duration of the universe, so it's a really weird system, Uh, but but I I, I think it's pretty awesome. Um, From campaign 10, there were 44 confirmed or validated at least planets by Livingstone et al., and they started with 72 of these and whittled them down using uh, um, some characterization from spectra. and imaging to to go down to the 44 that they were able to validate and this includes 16 planets less than two Earth radii. so there's a lot of small planets in there and a lot of planets around bright stars as well that we can follow up. Um, Going back to WASP, we had a WASP-128 which is not a planet, so um, it's a brown dwarf on a 2.2 day orbit that's 40 Jupiter masses, so this is right in the brown dwarf desert Um, but it would look like a planet because it's at less than one Jupiter radius uh, as we talked about brown dwarfs before, they, they can look very much like planets when, when they're transiting, just because the radius is so dense. Uh, another brown dwarf is Cori 20c, which is a 17-Jupiter mass uh, Jupiter mass planet, so just at the boundary of a brown dwarf and a planet, on a four-year orbit, and it could have caused the migration of the hot Jupiter Cori 20b, which is right at the, at the surface of the star. Um, moving away from sort of transits. To directly image planets, we had a planet discovered around PDS 70. So this is a, a young star with a disk around it, and in that disk was discovered a gap. Um, and there's there's been a lot of theory that the gaps around these young stars might be where planets are hiding, and the planets are the things that are sculpting this gap. And in this case, when they looked with with um, the VLT, they they detected a source in that gap that suggests a um, Seven to fifteen Jupiter mass planet, um, about twenty-two AU from its star. Um, so there was another interesting planet, or possibly brown dwarf, detected by the Hawaii Infrared Parallax Program. So they found a wide planetary mass companion that's eleven Jupiter masses that was two thousand AU away from this tight pair of bar- binary brown dwarfs. So this is a this doesn't look at all like a classic star system, and and it's moving uh, in the same direction and in a similar distance. From Beta Pic, and actually the spectra and the properties of this lonely planet look almost exact identical to Beta Pic B, so it's um it's quite a cool little result there. It's like a like a twin, but it's not attached to a star. Um, another interesting directly image results was of the Beta Pic system. So Jens Huymakers and co looked at Beta Pic using medium resolution imaging and spectroscopy. So like a combination where each pixel gets a, a spectra. And they used this and a mask for each potential model of the planetary atmosphere and found that when they used molecules that should emit from CO2 and H2O then the planet shone extremely brightly, brighter than the star. And then when they used other models such as methane, the, 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 the planet disappeared. So this is a potential new way to both detect new planets and also detect their atmospheric constituents simultaneously. So this is a really, really cool uh, development. Moving to real velocities. The LH, LHS1140 system, which has a transiting planet on 24 days, was studied with HARPS and re- the data was reanalyzed and it was suggested that there's possibly two more planets on 90 days and 3.8 days around that system, but they're not transiting. So that's quite an interesting, ca- if that's the case, because these planets must be differently aligned to the planet we do see transit, Which, as
2: I recall, is like an Earth-sized, yeah, it's relatively Earth-sized, Earth-sized
1: planet and another Earth-sized habitable planet, GJ 1132 was also studied with Harps and they detected a second planet around that system as well so, so both of those uh, Mirth planets detected with the Mirth ground-based transit survey might have brothers and sisters in their systems which is pretty cool
0: I think we need to go back to being careful about the, the use of the word Earth-size because we need to be far, far more specific there those two are very much more massive than the Earth um, although they are the about the radius uh, in in the radius of the Earth, so we need to be careful with definitions that we're using.
2: No, you know it's, it's our responsibility, I guess, as gatekeepers here, to mm-hmm. make sure that we're using the correct terminology, especially when we rail against it as well. Yeah, yeah, so, that's it's, true. Right.
0: it's only because we railed against it in this episode, so. Yeah,
1: absolutely. No, yeah, no, good, good point. So there were two more planet from the SOFI spectrometer, and they found planets around GLIUS 617a, which was also found by Carminus, and also GLIUS 96, which is a new Neptune mass planet on a 74-day orbit around this sort of uh, end dwarf. Brian et al. found that um, 39% of stars that have a small super-Earth planet close to their star also have Jupiter planets further out, or trends that suggest Jupiter planets. So this is far higher than that some, something like uh, 10% occurrence rate that's found for giant planets for the average star. So this is quite interesting, it suggests that, um, like in our solar system, small planets close to the star have distant j- giant planets uh, in, in the system. Um, and they also found that the systems with multiple planets in um, are more likely around metal rich stars, which is something we kind of knew already but but is, is uh, it's another interesting development.
2: It's interesting that we're kind of getting into this um, looking at comparing the planets within the system themselves stage of the study. Now, I remember, and I've been looking for it for the last 10 minutes, there was a study out a few months ago that essentially said, I remember when you brought up the first news item that small planets tend to be with small planets and large planets tend to be with large planets in planetary systems. So that we're now figuring out these inter-system trends as well as intra-system trends, yeah. which I think is a really interesting direction that we're going now, figuring yeah, out the comparative stellar system architecture as well.
1: Yeah, like as we develop more, we can see further out into a planetary system and we can start to actually do surveys of, of systems rather than individual planets, which is going to be cool. Another planet, another paper, sorry, on um, metallicity was by Owen and Murray Clay and they, they looked at the uh, this Fulton gap, so the gap where planets, Lose their envelope and it becomes evaporated. And what that tells us is something about the composition of the, the planetary cores. Um, and actually, they found that metal rich stars have higher core masses for the planets that have been evaporated than metal poor stars, which tend to have uh, gassier and, and lower mass cores, which is quite an interesting uh, use of the Kepler data there. We also had the project paper for a new transit search called Speculus, which is. Um, been installed in Chile. It's like Trappist, named after a Belgian culinary product, although this time a biscuit rather than a beer. And each of the four 1-meter telescopes that are installed in Paranal are going to follow cool dwarfs, just like Trappist, and um, looking for late M-stars with temperatures less than 2,700 degrees, hoping to spot the transit of Earth-sized planets, or terrestrial planets, around these stars. And there's four more telescopes planned actually in, in T.D. and in Tenerife there was another paper that I kind of wanted to study just because of the name. Uh, the name of this paper is Gravitational Waves from Ultra-Short Period Exoplanets. And I was thinking maybe they should add detection of using AI, just to add another buzzword, <laughs> topic. But, but they didn't. Very maybe trendy. We'll leave that for, for, for another time. Very 2018. Yeah, but they looked at whether planets and the gravitational waves caused by planets or giant planets orbiting stars could, could produce gravitational waves. And they found that that these giant planets could actually cause um, gravitational waves, but something like a billion times smaller amplitude than what's been found by LIGO. But they could potentially be be detectable with LISA, which is this new space-based gravitational wave observatory. Except when I looked into the actual planets they said could be detected, they were giant planets on periods less than two hours, which (laughs) I don't think exist. Now, So I think, I don't think it would be possible to detect any sort of planets using gravitational waves, but I guess in in 20 years, maybe someone will prove that wrong. In the news quite a bit this month, I saw one paper that was kind of spread very widely that was called the Obliquity Variations of Habitable Zone Planets Kepler-62f and Kepler-186f. And this kind of rang alarm bells for me because we don't know the obliquity of any extrasolar planets, and as far as I'm concerned, we probably can't. Um, The obliquity, which is basically the tilt of a planetary axis which causes seasonal effects on planets like the Earth, of course. And and so this this study looked at the possible obliquities of planets in multi-planet systems where interactions with other planets can tug potentially upright spins into high and problematic for life obliquities. Um, Although as I said, I kind of think that the, the paper was a little bit overspun, and actually the press release wasn't even very clear that these weren't observations, but actually theoretical models. And the number of assumptions required, um, such as the day length of the exoplanet, the mutual inclinations between the planets, the lack or presence of moons, weren't really explored in detail. So I think, pretty much, they they couldn't say anything about what the obliquities of these planets were. but. Um, they just chose two habitable zone planets for to make a good press release. I was going to say they are
2: kind of popular
1: planets. Yeah. They were in ExoCup, Cup, of course, did very well. But uh, <laughs> okay,
0: the dangers of a press release. I,
1: th- I think often the, the inaccuracies that come into like uh, into the, the press is not the result of journalists. Sometimes oh, no. it's the result the press release. Yeah, so,
2: absolutely, but, and you know you should. Any scientist listening, and with the option of of checking over a press release before it goes out, definitely, definitely do that. It's super important to make sure that the language you're using is something that you could defend if someone asked you about it, you know, in a public forum or
1: something. So, yeah, you're right. So about two years ago, there was a NASA workshop, which Andrew actually talked about, from the Nexus for Exoplanetary System Science uh, on biosignatures and biosignatures for exoplanets. And this finally this month led to six papers in a special issue of Astrobiology on biosignatures. Um, so these looked at a review of the known and proposed biosignatures and how we model them. They looked at the an in-depth review of oxygen as a biosignature, um, a new Bayesian framework to understand and quantify the confidence in biosignature assessments. Uh, they looked at extending that framework in anticipation of more data from James Webb and other telescopes, and also uh, they reviewed the upcoming telescopes in order to uh, to look at how biosignatures might be detected in the future. I think that's, is that a good su- summary of the Excellent six papers? summary,
2: yeah. I mean, putting two years of, of work into a you know, three-paragraph summary did a perfect <laughs> job of it. Um, they are all open access, I'll just add to that, um, and the first paper, which I think was led by Nancy Kiang. That's the overview review paper. If you don't want to read all six, read that one. But I'd read all six. They're all pretty great. Uh, The result of a lot of hard work from
1: a lot of great people in some time. And moving on to atmospheres, there were a couple of studies I wanted to highlight. So firstly, KELT-9b, which is the the hottest exoplanet detected, uh, something like 4,000 degrees Kelvin on its sun-like side. so this was found to have an extended hydrogen envelope around it, and they, 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 they found this using two transits with Carmenes, which is this infrared spectrograph, and they were able to use the spectra to remeasure the Rossiter-McLaughlin effect. So this is um, the the path the planet crosses the star in velocity space. If that makes any sense, so as it as it eclipses the part of the star that's moving towards us, it covers up blue light, and as it co- Eclipse kind of is the part moving away from us, it comes up red light, so we get this change in colour. Um, and they they used this and modelled this and were able to find that um, there was excess H-alpha, so this is the strongest hydrogen line that we kind of usually see in stars, um, in absorption around the planet. And actually it nearly doubled the planetary depth from 0.68% to 1.15%. Um, so, so there's uh, a lot of hydrogen around that system. And another interesting study was done by uh, GTC, or the Gran Telescopio Canario. I think I didn't note that down. But anyway, it's the biggest telescope in the world at 10.2 meters in diameter. However, it's not been used for exoplanets transit spectroscopy very often. However, new, new observations of the super Neptune WASP-127b in high resolution have shown a seriously impressive spectrum of this 1400 Kelvin point two. Jupiter mass planet. Uh, not only did they find a bluewood slope, which is a kind of tracer for, for haze in the atmosphere, but they also found the element sodium, which has been seen before, potassium, and also, I believe for the first time, lithium. Um, and these are seen in supersolar quantities as well. And so I think this is another paper how we're kind of having this revolution of, of ground-based transmission spectroscopy. Well, we're moving from sort of very low numbers of points so sort of looking in just three bands to try and find something out about a planets atmosphere, to, to looking in high resolution and how actually um, we can do and find so many more interesting things when we move to this higher resolution end and that is the end of my news
2: well it's come to that time in the show where it's now become customary for our valued guests uh, to add a lovely new planet to our collection of adopted planets um, before we let them go. So, Gully, who or which planet have you chosen for us this month?
3: Uh, so, I chose Hat P11, uh, and in part because of my interests uh, in stellar astrophysics, even more so than planets, which is that Hat P11 has the special property of basically doing stellar tomography. In other words, the planet maps out different regions on the surface of the star in terms of its distribution of, of uh, stellar surface inhomogeneities. So you can see star spots and, and uh, that sort of phenomena on the surface because uh, the planet goes over the spots and causes these relative uh, enhancements and, and deficits in the transit flux compared to what you'd expect of a, of a unspotted star. See, so this
2: is a what super Neptune-ish, Neptune-ish type size planet. What is it specifically that makes it able to produce that effect?
3: Uh, well, one unusual thing is that it uh, it actually orbits what we think based on some of these tomographic measurements. It orbits in a in a way that's um, the the uh, orbit orbital plane of the planet is actually inclined to the rotational plane of the star. Or These axes are inclined relative to each other, uh, fairly large, to a fairly large degree, so that as the star rotates, um, on one axis, the, the planet orbit maps out, uh, vertically different chords of the star. And, uh, and that's a relatively unusual property. Uh, but it's also the fact that this star happens to be much more spotted than average. So the stellar, the sun's surface only has maybe I forget maybe 0.3 percent of its surface covered in in star in star spots or sunspots I guess uh, or less, and this one has I want to say maybe uh, eight or 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 so percent or or three to eight percent depending on the season or something. Uh, there's details about that in the uh, in a paper by Brett Morris uh, who also has a new recent paper on how you can get even more. Uh, precise estimates on planetary radii uh, based on trying to counteract some of these stellar inhomogeneity effects. So, really interesting stuff.
1: Yeah, it's an interesting planet. I mean, we know we, we have a lot of uh, planets known for just, just being interesting planets by themselves, but I think this is the first time we have a planet which is useful for it for mainly telling us more about its star like mapping its star
3: which is which is a really cool addition to our little group i think that's right that's right and this is going to be fundamental i think for james webb space telescope as you have to start to distinguish the surface inhomogeneities from the exoplanet transmission spectrum signal because they're both about at the same level because they're such weak signals uh so i think this is a good test case for that thanks
0: yeah, Happy 11 is one of the, the ones where we've got the most information. It's got all of the Kepler observations, but it's also got quite a lot of Hubble Space Telescope characterization information as well. And it's one of the first Neptunes to actually be observed to have water vapor absorption features in this atmosphere. So it's got it. We use it always as a test case. So we're working on some database uh, stuff at the moment at Space Telescope and we use it as a test case because it's got everything associated with it that we need to deal with and and it's that chucks up a load of problems when you're trying to compile data sets but at the same time it's a really useful planet to to give you that information as well.
3: Yeah absolutely.
0: Fantastic. I always like a nice one that we can characterize in our list. Not biased at all.
2: Yeah, I thought you'd like that one, Hannah, considering we did Happy 26b last month. Yeah, right? I mean. I was like, yeah, Hannah, Hannah will like this planet. We didn't even talk that much about the planet, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
0: not a bad star. We like it when stars birth every now and again. Yeah, great spot.
2: Great. Well, thanks for that, Golly. That was a, f- a fine choice and a great addition. Yeah, there? thanks very much. To our
1: collection.
0: Yep, brilliant. Okay.
1: Thank you. Well, thanks so much for joining us this month for another excellent installment of Exocast. We will return next month with more exciting exoplanetary news and views when I will be joined by a special guest yet to be confirmed. Uh, Until then, you can check out all of our previous shows on our website, exocast.org, and on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at exo-cast, and don't forget to like us on Facebook. Okay, until next time, goodbye. bye Bye. 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 Bye.
0: Exocast. Edit. diddle